With all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Therefore, he appointed Jesus as head of the church, which is his body. And just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ and us. So we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and mature in the body, putting off our old selves to be made new and clothing ourselves with the full armor of God. Each part does its work until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. And there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I'd again like to thank uh, those of you and welcome you if you're watching the live stream. Good to have you with us as well as our Skagit campus and in uh, Belize at San Pedro at Hope Haven. Glad to have you with us. And those of you at Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God, glad that you're with us and allow us to be with you today as well as those at Crossway Church in Auburn and, uh, and you guys here as well. It's good to have you here as well. Hey, uh, like many of you, I went to the Holy Land this week uh, with the Linden Fair, went back to Linden, and what I, found, um, what I found this week is that during fair week, Linden throws their arms open to all. They are one of the most welcoming places in all of the world. Everyone is welcome in Linden this week. And then I realized why, they are Dutch. You pay to park, you pay to get in, you pay to drink water, you pay to have snacks, you pay to eat, you pay to ride rides, you pay to go to shows. Of course, they welcome you in. And it's amazing, there's something that really is unfair about the fair. In fact, I think what is really unfair about the fair is fair food is unfair. Because there's so much, and it's the one time of year when I kind of like say, okay, you know, throw caution to the wind. I have my annual king corn dog every year. I have my annual king corn dog, but the problem is while I'm eating that corn dog, I smell the waftings coming from Piggly's barbecue, and then there's the roasted corn, and if you've never had garlic cheese curds, hello, I know what heaven's food will be. It's amazing, and that just to get started, and then there's all these varieties of funnel cake and kettle corn and a moo witch that's huge, and of course, the ever-famous poffergeets. And so there's all of this stuff. In fact, this year, after I waited about an hour and a half to get my puffer juice, I asked them for a free refill. I learned this at the summit this year. I asked them for a free refill, and I got rejected. But there's all of this, and what is unfair is that, like, with all of this food, there's so many choices. I have to decide what not to eat because I can't eat it all, and so I've got to be selective. The reason I tell you that is I feel like as we go into chapter 5, the first 20 verses of chapter 5 of Ephesians, I feel like I've been given 35 minutes at the fair and saying, go eat, and I have to decide what not to eat and decide what I can eat. There is so much in these 20 verses, and I want to encourage you this week to dig in. There is, there is depth, there is beauty, there is richness, there is truth for us in Ephesians chapter 5. And throughout this chapter, there's five or six of these little sound bites, these little tweets, as it were, these little statements that are simple and yet profound. If you could just grab a hold of these, if you could understand them, if you could live them, it would change your life. Let me give you one, for instance, live a life of love. 
Now that's a simple statement, but if you really begin to understand it in the biblical context of what this means, that would change the entire way you live your life. We're out of verse 10, where it says, and find out what pleases the Lord. Boy, that's, and we'll come back to this later. This is a real clarifying question. What am I trying to please here, myself or the Lord? Other people or the Lord? Or how about this, live as children of light to understand what that means and, and to live with that. Or as it says, to understand what, God, what the Lord's will is, not just your will, not our culture's will, but what is the Lord's will. And, and there are many of these statements, there's another two or three that, that I didn't even pull up out of these 20 verses. And here's what I would say. Today, if as I'm talking, you lose interest or you feel like this doesn't apply to me, if you'll take one of these statements during my sermon and just chew on it and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you and transform you, I am good with that. I'm giving you permission to not listen to me today if you'll listen to the Holy Spirit on one of these statements. But they're amazing. And here's what I wanna caution you with, though, is that if you truly follow God's promptings on these, and you fully understand, is that you may find that there are times that what actually pleases the Lord is not what you would have chosen. And if you understand the Lord's will, it might be different than what you thought your will was. And to live a life of love might cause you to do some things that you're not comfortable with, or to have to say no to some things, or to give up some things, or to stretch a little bit, or to live as, a children, as children of light that there's some things in your lifestyle that might have to change. And you might come across a, a thing where you say, I'm not sure that I like this. And with that, I would say what the late, uh, great uh, um, R.C. Sproul said. He said, when there's something in the word of God that I don't like, the problem is not with the word of God, it's with me. And when we can get to that place in our life, when we recognize, okay, God's word says this, I'm thinking this, if we can get to the default mode of, I'm gonna trust God's word, God's will and God's word says this, our culture says this, God's word, God's will says this, my friends are doing this. If we see that there's a problem here, the problem is not with God's word. God's word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. While heaven and earth will pass away, his words will remain. The problem is with us. But it's also to understand that the words of God come from our loving heavenly father. And he says, when I give you something that you don't necessarily like, when I give you something that may be a parameter you don't wanna fit within, that doesn't fit in with your culture, the reason our heavenly good loving father does that is he says, I wanna protect you and provide for you. I want to, if you will follow my words, I wanna provide you life in abundance, the life you were created to live, and I wanna protect you from some heartache, from some guilt, from some regret, from some pain, from some, some, some shame that you would have. I want to provide and I want to protect you. And I think all of discipleship and following Christ is actually a life of trying to stay in alignment with what God would have for us. It's this daily realigning ourselves with God's word, his will, his way. Now I wanna just say, as we get into this, that the message today out of Ephesians chapter five has been a struggle for me. Because of my study break in late June and early July, I had this sermon written out completely four weeks ago. But when I got done with it, I was like, I'm not really sure. There's so much I'm trying to cover. I'm not doing an adequate job on any of it. It just feels like this cursory overview. And I've wrestled with it. So much so that even this week, there are portions of this sermon I have rewritten two and three different times as late as Friday afternoon, rewriting an entire segment of this sermon and even tweaking it yesterday morning. I say that to tell you this, that you're not gonna get all the blanks in your little notes filled in today. 
I know some of you are breaking out in a rash right now. Some of that is sermon that will have to be done later. I just, I, it has changed. It has been a struggle. But I, I, in fact, I'm going to really land basically on one verse out of these 20. One verse, we're going to spend an extraordinary, an ex- a lot of time on that one verse. Um, and I just wonder, would you pray with me as we, as we tackle this today? Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you that you want to protect us and provide for us. So I pray today that we would have humble hearts to receive from you, open ears, that we would allow your Holy Spirit through the power of your living word to change and transform our lives. All for your glory, we pray it in your name, amen. A couple of weeks ago, we turned a corner in this letter in, in Ephesians chapter four, when it goes from the, the theological to the practical, when, when in chapter four, verse one, where uh, Paul writes, you know, and live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And then he starts getting really specific. And what we saw last week in the last half of chapter four was he was saying, I, you know, I insist on this in the Lord that you not live like the Gentiles do. And he does this contrast. You know, the Gentiles, the, the, the world, the culture, the way you used to be. They, they have, they have a, a, a darkened heart. They have a hardened heart, a darkened understanding. They have futility in their thinking. They're continually going after the, the lust of the flesh. He says, that's who you were but that's not who you are anymore. And so he says, put off. Remember that put off was to banish, not to just put it in the closet like a Mr. Rogers sweater, to put it away, to banish it, to get rid of that old self because it's being corrupted with its deceitful desires. He says, I don't want you to live that way. Contrast, instead, put on. Put on this new self. Be made new in the attitudes of your mind. Think differently. See things from a different perspective. Have a different understanding of what is truth and become a new person created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And remember, he says, you are the sons and daughters alive in Christ by grace, formerly known as Gentiles. And in the midst of all of that, he gives some specifics like this is what you used to do. This is what I want you to do. This is how the world lives. This is how the kingdom of God operates. And in the midst of it all, he says, and it's the Holy Spirit that's doing this work. And you don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul's just writing a letter. So he doesn't stop and say, hmm, I think I'll start chapter five now. He wasn't thinking chapter and verse. He's just writing thoughts. And so this is a continuation of his thoughts as he goes on. And so he goes into chapter five. This is where we're going to pick up today. Chapter five, verse one. And he says, be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children. He comes back to this again. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget your identity. Don't forget that you were once far away, but you've been brought near. That you are predestined, you were selected, you were adopted into the family. You were outsiders, but now you're insiders. You've been marked and sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. You've been given a glorious inheritance in the saint. You've had the, the unspeakable riches of Christ, all the heavenly blessings on you. You have all of this goodness, all of his grace. You are his sons and daughters that you would not forget that you are dearly loved children. Remember, he would pray that you would have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love. He reminds him again, you are children who are loved by the Most High God. He says, be imitators of God. And I see that in like, I'm out. He's God, I'm not. I mean, that's setting the bar and the standard pretty high. Hey, here's what I want you to do. Go imitate God. Well, I can't do that. 
Like he's the creator, I'm the created. He's omnipotent, I'm not. He's all omniscient, he's omnipresent. I'm only omni-fallen. That's the only omni I've got. I can't, and in these 20 verses, he lays out what does it look like to, to be an imitator of God as a dearly loved child. And he says what we're talking about, and over these 20 verses, he talks about a life of love, of light, and of wisdom. Now I give you that just so that you can fill in at least one blank because that originally was my outline for this talk. We're not gonna get to that. So, there you go, you're happy with that. All right, so he says, I want you to be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and then he says, and live a life of love. This is foundational. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus called us to. When, when it was asked of Jesus, what's the first and greatest commandment? Love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, quoting Deuteronomy 6. And then he says, oh, and the second one is like it. And love your neighbor as yourself, quoting out of Leviticus. He says, this is it. It's a life of love. Later, he would say to his disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you would love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples. That's it. It's a life of love. And we are to live this life of love. But it could be easy to start thinking, well, that, that kind of feels, you know, kind of squishy, kind of... 1967-ish, Summer of Love, Woodstock, Volkswagen micro van. I mean, it's just like, it feels a little hippie-like to live this life of love. And so he says, let me take it beyond the philosophical, beyond the flowery. Let me show you what I'm talking about. He says, live a life of love just as, and here's our example, just as Christ loved us. Okay, so this isn't just like, oh, I love you guys. When Christ loved us, he modeled how he loved, he illustrated how he loved, he showed us his love, Christ loved us, and he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's what love, living a life of love is. When you live a life of love, there's sacrifice involved. Jesus gave up his rights. He gave up his wants. He gave up his desires. He gave up his will. He gave up his glory. He gave that all up. He gave up his very life because he loved us. He says, there's a picture of love. There's a picture of a life of love. And when he did that, that became this act of worship, this fragrant offering that was pleasing to God, which ties together these commands from Jesus, is that one of the ways that we love our heavenly Father with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is how we love other people, how we love our neighbor, and how we love our neighbor then is a one way that we love our God. And he says, I want you, I want you to live this life of love because, because you are so dearly loved by God, because of that, out of, the, out of that, in response to that, let your expression of love to God be to live this way. And Jesus shows us that to live this life of love and to honor God is that it's more than just philosophy. Now what we're seeing in Ephesians four and five is that he comes along and he says, this living your life of love, there's, there's some actual practical application to that. That it's a life that's marked with, with virtuous character and conduct. Now it's interesting, virtuous is a word we don't use a lot. In fact, sometimes it's seen as old fashioned, antiquated, virtuous, morally upright, um, you know, you know, chaste, and it just seems so Victorian, so, so grandmotherish, so not of now. But we are called to live virtuous lives of character 
and conduct. Remember who he's writing this to. First and foremost, to the church in Ephesus. Now, to other churches as well, but in Ephesus, Ephesus, as we talked about, was this port town, it was a very important town, very cosmopolitan town, sailors coming and going all the time, people coming and going all the time, a lot of debauchery, a lot of immorality, a lot of corruption. What happens in Ephesus stays in Ephesus. People come and going, no one knows, you're away from home, you're away from your family, you're away from your parents, you're away from your kids, away from your wife, whatever. A lot of this was going on. This is the culture they were raised in. So you can see how this is so countercultural when he says, I want you to live a life that is virtuous in your character and your conduct. Now what's interesting is, while throughout this book, he talks about the way they were, he talks about the Gentiles and their thinking of futility and their hardness of their heart and their fleshly lust, uh, uh, the lust of the flesh, he talks about all of that. The goal for his writing, and we need to understand this of the church, the goal for his writing and his message is not to condemn the culture. The goal of his writing is to show the contrast and exhort and encourage the elect. It's reality. There's stuff going on out there. What I want to do, he says, is I want to encourage and I want to exhort those who are transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so he says in, in verse three, and, and this, is, this is really where we're gonna spend the majority of our time. He says, he says, but among you. There's this contrast again. You live in a world that is filled with all kinds of things that are deplorable to God. In, in fact, in Ephesus, um, 500 BC, uh, the person that is most widely connected with Ephesus beside the Apostle Paul uh, in, in, in human history uh, was a philosopher who lived in 500 BC. His name was um, uh, Heraclitus, and he was nicknamed the weeping prophet. Now, some said that, you know, he was just kind of a depressed guy, and that may have been the truth. Barclay points out that one of the reasons that um, Heraclitus was referred to as the weeping philosopher is that he stated, you cannot look at the immorality of Ephesus without weeping. It was so horrible. It was the ultimate picture of humanity gone bad. And in the midst of it, he says, but, contrast, but among you, remember who you are, sons and daughters of the Most High God, beloved, adopted into the family, redeemed by his grace, brought alive in Christ, remember who you are, but among you, and he does this contrast, and he says, there must not be even a hint, even a hint. Okay, last week we saw where he says, put off, banish, get rid of. He takes it to the next level. He says, not only banish this, I don't even want there to be a hint of this. So whatever he's getting ready to talk about is something that's very important, something that, that we need to have completely out of our lives, out of our, our, our way of thinking and, and living and doing. It's what C.S. Lewis refers to, I believe, as the most unpopular of Christian virtues. And this is what he says. But among you, there must not be a, even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Let me remind you that while Ephesus was this important port city, while it was famous for its theater that held 20 to 25,000 people, what it was best known for was the temple to Artemis, 
one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, where people would come from all over the region to worship Artemis, and part of the worship of this goddess Artemis was to have temple prostitution, hundreds and thousands of prostitutes in the temple as an act of worship. And people would come to worship Artemis and engage in sexual immorality. Just say, it's not hard to get young men to come to your church if that's your form of worship. And people would come to that. So when he says this, he lives in a culture where it's not only culturally, but religiously expected, encouraged, and you're pressured to live a life of sexual immorality. Now you begin to see how absolutely relevant this is and how countercultural this message is to his audience. But for two months, I've said, we don't want to look at this as a document written to people that are dead who lived 2,000 years ago. We want to look at this as a document that was written to us. And when you look at this line, you begin to understand how absolutely countercultural and relevant this is to us. So, your mother and I have been talking, and we think it's time for the talk. Today is the talk. Because this isn't just for Ephesus. Among you, not the world, among those who've been redeemed by Christ, there must not be a hint of sexual immorality. And so we're saying, oh, that's right, the church frowns on sex. Bible frowns on sex. God frowns on sex. Well, no, it doesn't. In fact, God is the one who created sex. He doesn't frown on it. He created something beautiful, sacred, holy, wonderful. I mean, while he's doing crazy, you can imagine, he's creating the cosmos, the atmosphere, the, the plants, the animals. He creates humans. He goes, hey, I've got a great idea. They're going to love this. And the angels are going, we don't get it. He says, you never will. And God creates this thing called sex that not only proliferates the species, but provides pleasure and gives this opportunity for Unity and intimacy between two people in a binding covenant relationship. From the opening pages of scripture, Genesis 2, God says, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. There's an intimacy that takes place there. There's within this relationship, there's this oneness, not just a physical act, a oneness of their being. Now, When he says, let there not be a hint of sexual immorality, some of us go into justification mode. So, to give a bad quote of one of our former presidents, define sexual immorality. All right, so can we just define this one? Let me give you a working definition because we could get into all the nuances of the difference between fornication and adultery and incest and uncleanness, sexual immorality. Let me just give you a working definition. Here, this is what we're talking about. Sexual immorality is having sex with someone outside the binding, monogamous, covenantal marriage relationship between one man and one woman. That's what we're talking about. So we're gonna work from that that standpoint. And he says, let there not be a hint of sexual immorality. And this has been a part of the Judeo-Christian sexual ethic from the opening pages of scripture and throughout. This is one of the things that separated Judaism and later Christianity from every other world religion. 
that there would be this sexual ethic of purity. I mean, as I showed you in the opening pages of scripture, later in the 10 commandments, it's one of the big 10, you shall not commit adultery. And throughout the, the uh, laws uh, for, for Israel, Jesus comes, he quotes Genesis two, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and there'll be one flesh. Paul speaks of it over and over again. And when the, the church was thrown open, even to the Gentiles, you read about this in Acts 15. The Gentiles are coming into the church and you have these Jewish people who've been God's chosen people. And they say, well, they're coming in, but they have to, they have to convert to Judaism, which meant there's a whole bunch of festivals and rituals and laws they've never heard of. They have to start practicing and following and get circumcised and all this stuff. And finally, James, the brother of Jesus says, Acts 15 says, listen, we should not make it difficult for these people to come into the kingdom. Here's what we're gonna ask them to do. First of all, abstain from meat that's been polluted and sacrificed to idols. Just, just don't do that anymore. Don't eat animals that have been strangled and drink their blood. And third, avoid sexual immorality. This is a change from the way that you have operated your life. But here's what we want you to do. To come in line with God's standard, his, his uh, sexual ethic for his people. Abstain from sexual immorality. Now, it's amazing because you won't hear this message anywhere in our culture. Psychologists will tell you, if you hear a message repeated enough, long enough, it begins to feel true whether it's true or not. It, it's simple psychology. You just keep hearing something over and over again. Pretty soon you just start believing it. Rhetorical question here. Where in our culture... What advertising, what magazine, what book, what novel, what television show, what Netflix series, what HBO series, what Amazon Prime series, what movie, what music is saying abstain from sexual immorality because it's not fitting? Where are you hearing that? Nowhere. What you're hearing is the exact opposite. Here's a question for you. Where in your friendships, non-Christian and even Christian, where in some of your families, even Christian families, where in our educational system, where within your own thinking and in your own body are you hearing this message? Pretty much nowhere. We have a nonstop, steady diet of strong lies about sexuality and how we ought to operate from our world. And there's one small voice, but it's the voice of God. And it says there should not be a hint of sexual immorality amongst my people. It's not proper at all. And today you're gonna to hear that voice. And, and parents, parents, if you have children and teenagers, let, let me just encourage you, as awkward as it is, as uncomfortable and embarrassing as it is, as ill-prepared and equipped as you feel, as horribly as your parents did this, <laughs> engage in these conversations with your children because they are hearing another message constantly, all day, every day. And parents, I'll say this as well. To take in other voices that speak the truth. In our middle school ministry, The Edge, in our high school ministry encounter, in our young adults at the table, on an annual basis, they engage in conversations about what is proper biblically as God's people in the areas of sexuality. But don't put it all on the ministries. Let them reinforce what you're teaching at home. And some of you are saying, that's right, these kids need to hear that these days. 
You tell them, young perverts. Them hormones and tennis shoes, they need to hear this word. Okay. While that's all true, this message is not just for teenagers. This message is for our young adults, college students, and singles as well. This message is for those of you who are engaged as well. This message is for those of you who are married as well. This message is for those of you who are going through a separation. This message is for those of you who are divorced. This message is for those of you who are widowed. And wait for it, this message is even for our senior citizens. Now ask your doctor if Cialis is right for you. But this is, which by the way, who among us has two clawed foot bathtubs sitting in the backyard looking at sunsets? Regardless. This message is for all of us. Because we live in a world that says, no, 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 no. Listen, I'll tell you what it is. Premarital sex, extramarital sex, whatever sex, that's normal, that's healthy, that's expected, and there's even pressure to do that. We live in a culture that says, you wanna know what sexual immorality is? It's immoral to try and limit someone or tell them to repress whatever sexual feelings they have. That's the mindset. That's a lie that we are fed every single day. And in our culture, we have elevated this, this sexual expression to the level of idolatry. And we live in this culture that's just got this attitude. You know, just hook up and shack up and break up, be freed up. And if anyone tells you anything else, just tell them to shut up. Because we live in a hookup culture. Doesn't matter. Whoever, whenever, however, with however many ever, all of it, just go for it. Because why? It's my body, right? It's my sexuality. It's my choice. It's my right. It's my decision. It's my will. I can just hook up with whomever, whenever, as often as I want. And like the, the rally cry, the cheer of our culture today is this. You know, it's, it's this swipe right for just tonight. Look up, hook up, fight, fight, fight. That's it. We're just kind of going to do this thing. That you don't even have to wait to date to mate. Just go for it. It's great. That's the message. Who is telling any of us to wait until we're married to engage in sexual intercourse? Our world isn't. Some of our churches aren't. Some of our families and Christian friends aren't. You know, when I was a youth pastor years ago, I was, I was trying to, we would talk about sex on an annual basis as well, because it was such a part of their, their whole life. And I wanted them to hear the truth of the, of the word of God. And I wanted to explain to them about waiting until you're married uh, in God's design. And I was thinking, how do I, how do, I do this in a way that's creative, a way they might remember? And, and um, so again, this was late 80s, early 90s. And, uh, so, and, and I wrote a rap. <laughs> and, I, and I thought it's time to bring that back off the shelf. So, um, My name is B.O.B. I'm a Christian MC. I'm gonna rock on the mic throughout eternity. I am the master of disaster. The deaf is you, Taff. Slip another tape into the ghetto blaster. And you're gonna hear me preach against, uh, pre 
You're going to hear me bust a rhyme. I'll preach against sin any place or time. With lyrics so fresh, it's going to make you dizzy. Wait until you're married before you start to get busy. Okay, now, that was my rap. Okay. So. Okay. Now, here's the good news for many of you. That may have just gotten me fired. So you get a brand new pastor next weekend. Where's the message coming from? Wait until you're married to have sex. Where's the message coming from? Wait until you're married to shack up together. Some of our young couples, their favorite story in the Bible is your shack, me shack, into bed we go. They don't even know. I mean, it used to be in our culture, it was widely accepted that there was just like this linear progression that happened. Now, let me illustrate, and you're gonna have to help me out with this. Bill and Jenny sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G. Here comes the linear progression. First comes, then comes, then comes. Yeah, that was what was just generally accepted, that you would fall in love, and from that, you would maybe engage into this marriage where there's this covenantal, monogamous, ongoing, lifelong relationship, and it's implied that after, after that happens, you would engage in something that might produce a child. But no longer do we have in our culture this linear progression. You're not even sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G, you're looking online. Just trying to find someone to hook up with for the night. Just kind of accepted everywhere. You know, it's interesting, uh, in Barna's research, um, he found, the company found that when it comes to cohabitating couples that are not married, that's, and I didn't, I really chose to not bore you with statistics, but statistically, between Christian and non-Christian young people, the cohabiting levels are almost equal, almost on par. Because that's what our culture has influenced us more than God's word has influenced us, and we hear it long enough, and we begin to believe it because it feels true. Instead of saying, what does God's word say? I told you about my friend uh, that I met last year on our trip across Spain on the uh, Camino de Santiago. Stephen, he was, he was thinking about going into uh, the priesthood. He's trying to discern, should I go into the priesthood? And one day he said, hey, did you see that one gal? She's from Germany. I said, yeah, she's very striking, very beautiful young lady. He says, yeah, I want to meet her. I said, hey, I thought you were thinking about going to the priesthood. He said, I am. He said, but I've been praying the prayer of St. Augustine. Lord, make me chaste, just not yet. Like, oh, good. Yeah. That's the way we operate. Okay, yeah, there's God's word, but that's for later. Can I be bold? Can, can I be bold? I mean, I probably lost my job anyway. <laughs> Listen, if you are living with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your fiance, fiance move out. Well, okay, but we're committed to each other and we're going to get married. Then get married. Well, it's a financial thing. You know what? I'm sure that we can find someone with a spare bedroom or a spare basement to allow you to live for a month or two so you can get married. Just don't make it 12 years. But can we have a message somewhere that says, we're gonna honor God's word and it's gonna go against every grain in our culture and everything in our media, everything that people are saying and doing, but we're gonna live this way and not let a hint of sexual immorality be in our lives, which is improper for God's holy people. 
Oh, we talk about consensual sex and safe sex and responsible sex and non-committal sex and casual sex and friends with benefits and all of this stuff. Why don't we ever talk about godly sex, holy sex, sacred sex, this gift, beautiful gift from God? See, in our culture, we have so diminished and cheapened this beautiful, precious gift from God. We just say, well, it's just a biological, physical act. Animals do it. Listen, we are created in the image of God. We're not just another animal species. And don't even, so sick of this one, don't even come to me and say, you wouldn't buy a car without test driving it first. I'm so tired of that one. We're not talking about a used piece of metal. We're talking about a son or daughter that was made in the image of God that has a fragile soul that can be destroyed. Or maybe we've elevated it so high that we worship it that there's nothing. How can you expect me to live without sex? Listen, you can't live without oxygen. You can't live without water. You can't live without food. Newsflash. <laughs> Biologically, physically, you can live without sex. You can. And may I remind you that our loving Heavenly Father says, when I give you my word, I want to protect you. It's because I love you. I want to provide the best for you. See, sometimes we think about the consequences. Well, there's the physical consequences. There might be sexually transmitted diseases. There might be an unwanted pregnancy. And Well, shoot, we've got Planned Parenthood for that. We've got antibiotics. We've got all that taken care of. Listen, God says, I don't even want you to have to worry about that. And even if that's not the issue, no one talks about the emotional scars. No one talks about the relational confusion and, and, and destruction. No one talks about the toll it takes spiritually. Some of you sit in this room this morning with deep, deep scars because of sex. You would be the first to say, it's not just a physical act because it's messed you up. It's wounded you. And God says, I want to protect you from that. I want to provide life in all of its fullness for you. Now, I'll say this. If you live according to God's standards, you might be passed by, you might be made fun of, you might be pointed out, you might be left out, but you'll be hearing the whisper of the Holy Spirit, that's my daughter, that's my son. When I was in college, I had this incredible summer job uh, working on roofs, hard work and uh, good money. It allowed me to go to, to school and, and stay mostly debt-free. These guys, and I'm not saying this is not a blanket statement for all roofers in the world, but this crew that I worked on, when it comes to sex, was the most crass, most crude, most vile, most vulgar reprobates I've ever met. Good guys, but just gone on this issue. And when it came to their knowledge that I, as a you know, late teen, early 20s man, was still a virgin, oh my goodness. I became the butt of every joke, and it was heralded from every rooftop, literally. 
Marvel's a virgin, can't get laid, on and on they would go. But you know what? I knew that God had called me to a different standard. God had redeemed me, and I wanted to follow him. Now, we've only gotten this far in the verse. We haven't even gotten to any kind of impurity. Isn't that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Oh, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery. He's quoting the Ten Commandments. And then he raises the bar and says, but I tell you, if you even look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. Now he's talking about impurity. In our world, with pornography that's rampant even in this room, with the purity of our eyes, with the purity of our thoughts, with the purity of our attitudes towards the others, with the purity of our relationships. And you say, well, and what's the greed bit? That just seems out of place. Some of your translations say covetousness. That when we engage in sexual immorality and all things impure, that really is just greedy, saying, I'm nothing more, it's devaluing ourselves actually, I'm nothing more than an appetite that needs to be satisfied, that needs to be gratified. And it's all about my wants and my feelings and my desires and my, my will and, 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 and all of my stuff. He says, this is not proper for God's holy people. He, he says, the world does that. Yes, we get that. They don't know God. They don't have, they don't have the grace. We're talking about us, redeemed in the body of Christ. You know, my mom um, gave me advice years ago. I've shared this before. Actually, because my dad was a pastor, he had a lot of young pastors that would come to him and, and get wisdom. And she would, always, she would say, I give them one word of advice as they go into the ministry. Here was her, my mom's advice. Keep your Bible open and your zipper closed. All right. You can quote mom on that one. Can I tell you how many pastors, if they would have followed my mom's advice, would still be in the ministry today? Would still have a marriage today? would still have a, a reputation of integrity with God today? What if, what if we just said, God, I'm gonna trust you. It goes against every other voice in my world, but I'm gonna trust that you want the best for me and that you wanna protect me. Well, verses four, five, and six, it goes on to some more details and some of the consequences and all that. And then it gets down to seven and eight, and he says this. Therefore, with all that in mind, you can study that on your own. Do not be partners with them. Like, don't participate. You're, you're different. You were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Not just you were once in darkness. He said you were darkness. You were dead in your sins. You were darkened in your understanding. You had the futility thinking. You were going after all the, all the, the, the fleshly lusts. You were dark, but Jesus said you're the light of the world. You are light, and so he says... Live as children of light. Let your lifestyle conform to your identity. Let your behavior confirm your identity. As a son and daughter, redeemed by the precious blood of our Lord and Savior, who loved us enough that he would give up his life for us. And then he goes on to say, and so produce this fruit that comes from living God's way. Verse 10, he says this, and I, I say this before. He says this as a statement. This is such a clarifying question. You're not sure what you should do? Ask yourself this question. Will this please God or is this about pleasing me? 
Will this please God or am I trying to please the crowd? Does this please God? Does this draw me closer to Christ or closer to my culture? Does this produce the fruit of light, the fruit of the spirit or the acts of the sinful nature, the old way that's being corrupted by its deceitful desires? And what if, what if we, we're not here to condemn the rest of the world, what if we, the chosen of God, said from this day forward, we will repent and we will live in such a way that there is not a hint of sexual immorality. What if we chose by the power of the Holy Spirit to live in such a way with such a behavior that it conforms to and confirms our identity of who we are in Christ? What if we lived in a way that sought to understand the will of God and to find out what pleases God and to live in that because our God loves us and wants the best for us and wants to provide and protect? What if we listen to that voice instead? Full circle back to where we started. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Today, as we close our time, we are going to remember the way that Christ gave himself up for us as a sacrifice. We're gonna remember that his body was broken so that we could have fullness of life. That his blood was shed so that we could have redemption and forgiveness and grace. And today we're gonna take communion. And as we take communion together, I want this to be a time for us. For some of us, it's a time of repentance. For some, it's a time of commitment. For some, it's a time of rejoicing and worship and celebration. And maybe it's all of the above. And maybe during this time, it's just a time to surrender your will and your life wholly to God. During this time to say, God, by the power of your spirit from this day forward, I want to live the life that you've called me to live. I want to honor this precious gift that you've entrusted to me. I want to honor others in my life. I want to honor my own body. I want to use my sexuality in such a way that is glorifying to you and honors you. What if during this time we spent some time just saying, God, I want to get rid of every hint of sexual immorality and live a life that pleases you.